0: I preach a little bit differently than Kyle does. Now, I'll leave you to judge whether that's a good thing or not, okay? But I I do preach a little bit differently. We're going to have a little bit, uh, uh, some points on the slides to my left and to my right. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to read the text together as a whole, and then we're going to back up and walk through it verse by verse. And so that's kind of what you are in for this morning, So as you're turning to John chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 26. And let me kind of give you a a brief look at what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the anointing of Jesus by Mary. We're going to see Jesus then entering Jerusalem in victory, also known as the triumphant or triumphal entry. We're going to see some God-fearing Gentiles come seeking after Jesus. And lastly, what we're going to see this morning is Jesus' answer to those God-fearing Gentiles. And really an answer that echoes to all of us today as well. So we have the anointing, we have the arrival, we have the aspiration, and we have the answer as our four focus points for this morning. So beginning in John chapter 12, starting in verse 1, going all the way to 26, let's read together. Jesus, therefore... Six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial." For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Verse 12, On the next day the large crowd who had come to the feast When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good, look, The world has gone after him. Verse 20, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we see this morning, or the first stop in our journey is the anointing. We see the anointing in verses 1 through 11. It's six days before the Passover. Jesus arrives in the village of Bethany. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. And yes, this is the same Lazarus that we've, we heard about last week and the week prior. This is the dude that Jesus raised from the dead for the glory of God. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus do what good Baptists do when they have a guest over, especially one as important as Jesus. They cook a meal. They get some food together and they bring him in for some fellowship. Martha is serving. Lazarus is sitting at the table reclining with Jesus. Where is Mary? Well, she's there and she's not far from the feet of Jesus. We see in verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, just how expensive was this pound of, of pure nard? Some of your translations may say nard oil, both are okay. Uh, Judas Iscariot is going to claim that it could have been sold for 300 denarii, which in that time would have been about the yearly wage for a worker in Israel. So this pound of nard oil, or this pure nard then, would have been the equivalent to a year's worth of wages for many of the people in Israel. So I, I did a little research, I did a little math, and I don't want to scare you. For those of you who know me, you know I don't do math well, but I use a calculator, so it's good. Okay, A denarii or denarii would have been the minimum wage for a day worker in Israel. They typically worked 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, and they typically worked 50 weeks out of the year. So a day worker in Israel would have earned, with that calculation, 300 denarii a year. So this, uh, I mean, it's, it's said in the passage; it's not a surprise to us, but I want to take the denarii out and I want to plug in the minimum wage for the state of Mississippi into that equation. So the current uh, minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, $7.25 an hour at 12 hours a day for six days a week. And I, I even took overtime pay into account, okay? would look like $638.16 a week. So That's the 290 for 40 hours, 348 16 for 32 hours overtime. So we take that 638 and multiply it by 50 weeks and we get basically what's right under $32,000 a year. It, for those interested, it comes out to $31,908. But we'll say $32,000 just for, to keep things simple, right? So 32000 is what that single pound of nard oil, that pure nard, was worth if you translate the numbers to our time. Now I know we can't do that perfectly, but that does give us a a general picture of how expensive this little pound of nard oil would have been. My my main point in doing the math for us this morning is to help us see and sort of begin to understand the sacrifice that Mary is making when she busts this bottle of perfume open to anoint Jesus' feet with it. And even though, I mean, we, we think about $32,000 in our time, right? I mean, you could buy a vehicle with that. That's a nice down payment on a house. That, depending on where you live, that might even buy a, buy a house, a small house. You know, you're not buying anything extravagant by any means. But that's a hefty chunk of change to spend on what would have been uh, the other passages, Matthew, Mark, they point out that she anointed his head. John is going to say his feet. It's most likely just both. There's no, there's no discrepancies there, right? So that's $32,000 to anoint Jesus' head and his feet. Now, I'm, we probably have some folks in here who like to pamper themselves, but I don't know anybody who's spending $32,000 on themselves when they go to the spa. Now, if you do, you need to get them to come to harvest and cut a tithe check to us, okay? All right, I'm just saying. We need to you know, bring them on in, right? But we can, we can begin to understand the, the amount that was spent there. Which brings me to say, even though Mary's sacrifice for Jesus is great, we can basically put a dollar sign to it, his sacrifice for Mary is going to be far, far greater. Mary poured out her oil, her perfume, and Jesus is going to pour out his blood. Now, he doesn't pour out his blood because she poured out her oil, She's not sacrificing this to get something in return. But the truth remains, though, that Jesus is going to pour out His life so that Mary will find eternal life in Him. Which brings me to say, His sacrifice for us will always be greater than anything we could ever give to Him or give up for Him. Guys and gals, listen for just a moment. Consider the blessings that Christ has poured out lavishly upon your life. You know, we think about we have things to eat, we have things to drink, we have a place to lay our heads, we have friends, we have family, we have all these commodities, we have football, we have all these things that we love to participate in, to partake of. And those are certainly blessings, but we cannot forget that the chief blessing out of all that he's blessed us with is the life that we have in the blood that was shed upon the cross in our place. He took on the guilt of our sin when He was placed upon that cross. The wrath of God poured out as the blood of Jesus spilled across the cross. The Lamb that was slain was slain on our behalf, even though we did not deserve even an ounce of it. I cannot possibly begin to overstate this. The greatest blessing that you or I could ever have in this life is the blessing of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He laid down His life, poured out His blood, so that we could have life in Him. That's the blessing. That's not just a blessing. That is it. That is the blessing. And if that was the only thing He has ever done for us, if that's the only thing He ever did for us, then that would be enough. Do you hear me? If all we have to say of Christ Jesus is that He laid down His life for us so that we may find it in Him, that is enough. That is enough to earn our lives. That is enough to earn our praise. That is enough to earn our worship. If that's the only thing He's ever done for us, that's enough. That is enough. there There is no adequate way that we could ever repay Him for it either. We could give Him all of our money, all of our time, all of our talent, all of our lives, everything that we have, and it still wouldn't even begin to tip the balance in our favor. And that's why it's called grace. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Moving forward, Judas of course is going to cause a fuss over this incident. He asks in verse 5, "Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people?" Of course, he's not asking with the right heart nor the right motives as we see in verse 6. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box he used to pilfer, he used to pilfer what was put into it. But Jesus is going to respond to Judas' question in verses 7 and 8. He says, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, if you read ahead, you're going to find out that Jesus' body is not going to be prepared on the third day after his burial. And if I could have just a little bit of a uh, let's let's have a little bit of congregational participation here, right? Why isn't Jesus' body going to be prepared on the third day after his burial? I'll give you a hint. We celebrate it every year. We make a big fuss out of it. Some churches bring in big speakers and Tim Tebow, and they do all sorts of crazy things about it, right? Some churches put on plays, right? It's because of the resurrection that his body is not going to be there. They aren't going to get to really prep his body for burial because his body is not going to be there. He is risen. So what Jesus is communicating here is that this expensive container of pure nard oil is part of the anointing process in preparing his body for burial. A burial that is coming sooner rather than later. A burial that will be followed by. The greatest triumph over death the world will ever know. A burial that will end on the third day when Jesus rises from the grave. You'll notice with me in verses 9 through 11 that word has gotten out about Jesus being near Jerusalem. And so a large crowd of the Jews show up to see. They don't only show up for Jesus. They also show up to see Lazarus, who was raised from the dead uh, by Jesus. It's, It's during these verses, during this time, we see that this plan of the chief priests is to uh, put Lazarus to death as his bodily resurrection was causing these Jews to believe in Jesus. He was causing them to follow after Christ. And in commenting on these verses, all, all I really want to say, all I really have to say is that if they think the resurrection of Lazarus is going to shake things up in Jerusalem, if they think that the, the resurrection of Lazarus is going to make some people follow Christ, believe in Jesus, just wait until they see about the resurrection of Jesus and how that's going to change Jerusalem, and not only Jerusalem, but the world. They're going to be in quite, in for quite a surprise when they see the impact of Jesus's resurrection on the world, an impact that reaches all the way across the ocean to us here in Ridgeland, Mississippi today. Ponder those things for just a moment. So here we have the anointing. Second stop in our journey is the arrival. The arrival. Verses 12-19 through 19 reads, On the next day the large crowd who had come uh, to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It's the week of Passover. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Commonly, we, we call this a triumphal or triumphant entry. And there is something indeed triumphant about this arrival of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. But but before we get into what the triumph is, let's talk about what the Jews who lined the streets might have thought the triumph was. See, these Jews, they greeted Jesus as He rode into Jerusalem like a people greeting a beloved, conquering, victorious king. They lined the side of the streets Pulled out the palm branches, began to shout the words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What are they shouting exactly? The word Hosanna is basically an appeal for help from God. John 12, 13 is a reference to Psalm 118, which says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. What they are shouting then is an appeal to Jesus for salvation. But the appeal of salvation may not be what we think it is, however. We read the passage today, seeing how the Scriptures are fulfilled in the triumphal entry, and know that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is on the basis of being victorious over sin and death through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. But the Jewish person in this crowd was probably not thinking that way. They were probably seeing Jesus as the one who would come in and kick Rome out of the country and restore the kingdom of Israel. Rome was their oppressor. Rome had defeated them and put them down at every opportunity. And and here was Jesus, born of the Davidic line, performer of all these miracles, gatherer of all these crowds, right? The people flocked to see Him. And he arrives into Jerusalem on the week of Passover when most, if not all, the Jews were present. Josephus, a little bit later, is going to record that at one year of Passover, there were about 2.7 million Jews in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Now, Josephus has been known to sort of inflate his numbers a little bit, but even if he's inflating them by double, you still have well over a million Jews in this city at the time. So there's a crowd there. These Jews are here from all over the place. And Jesus is riding in on the back of a young donkey as it was foretold in Zechariah chapter 9. I mean, if you're a Jew and you're sitting on the side of the street and you've got your palm branch and you're singing, you're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. Surely you might be thinking, hey, this is the time to overthrow the government. This is the time to kick Rome out. Jesus is coming in. we got all these folks here. Let's do something about them. And yet, the real victory, the real conquering, the real overthrowing that Jesus is going to be doing that week in Jerusalem is not overthrowing a Roman government, but rather in overthrowing the power of sin and death. The real victory would not be the one made on behalf of only the Jewish people, but one made on those, on the behalf of those who would believe, even those who believe in this room today, right now. The arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem is a triumphal entry, one over sin and death. And we are told in the Scriptures that the disciples didn't understand what was happening at first, but later, after Jesus was glorified, they would get it. You know, there's probably something to be said here about revelation and, and illumination, I mean, how come these disciples didn't understand what was happening in that moment? They knew the Scriptures. I mean, surely they had at least heard of Psalm 118 and Zechariah chapter 9. They walked with Jesus for three years at that point. Like, how, how could they miss this? And yet they missed it because Jesus hadn't been glorified yet. Jesus' glorification, His being lifted up upon the cross as the, is the turning point, as D.A. Carson explains it, for the basis of the disciples' understanding of the events that are transpiring in front of them. The glorification, the death of Christ, is going to lead into the burial, burial which leads into the resurrection, which leads into the ascension, which leads into the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But regardless of the disciples' recognition, the arrival of Jesus produces something else within the city of Jerusalem. The crowd has seen Lazarus, the man from the dead, raised from the dead by Jesus, and they were talking about it. They were testifying about it. They have seen Jesus do this absolutely incredible thing, and they are spreading it throughout Jerusalem. And because of this, more and more people are going out to see Jesus. More and more people are going out to follow him, to believe in him. So much so that in verse 19, the scheming Pharisees complain about it. They say, you see that you are not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. Let me, let me hit you with a thought real fast. When something amazing or something good happens to us, we, or when we witness something really cool happening, like Texas A&M beating Alabama... I'm sorry, Alabama fans. We talk about it, right? We send little gifts about it to our friend groups. I mean, we we it begins to take up our conversational space. But we talk about we talk about all sorts of things. We talk about the season finale of our favorite show. I mean, my goodness, how many times have we talked about Lost with people, or The Office with people? My personal favorite show, The Office. You know, we talk about the accomplishments of our children or our grandchildren. Like, I can walk into you and be like, you know what Samuel did the other night? Samuel bit me on the shoulder. Look at him learning how to chew. You know, we, we, we talk about those things. We talk about our grandchildren. We talk about how they, they hit that ball at T ball and how they ran to first base and somehow got there in a straight line. I mean, we talk about those things. We talk about the things that get us excited. We're not shy about sharing when good things happen to us, are we? And I just want to remind us this morning, I want to remind us gently and humbly that we should not be shy about sharing the good thing which Jesus has done for us. He gave us eternal life through His blood pouring out upon that cross. That is something that we should be excited about, folks. That's something that we should talk about with our friends and with our neighbors, with strangers at the gas station, wherever we may go. That's something that we should be thrilled to share with others. And we fall so short of that, myself included. I think about the times I go to maybe the gas station or I find myself in Kroger picking up something or just wherever I may be, and I think, man, this would be a good opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. And this morning, I find myself repenting of that. We should be a people who are about sharing good news with the world. And the good news is that Jesus has died on behalf of sinners. The third stop in our journey this morning is the aspiration. The aspiration. Verses 20 through 22, if you'll look with me. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Most likely these Greeks are God-fearing Gentiles who came to worship the week of uh, Passover. There isn't, there isn't too much to say regarding them except to say that their aspirations or their desire Okay, is to meet with Jesus. They approach the disciple Philip, who goes to Andrew, and together they approach Jesus with the request. It's simple, straightforward. I do want to note something, though. I believe it is worth noting that these God-fearing, uh, God-fearing Greeks were not immediately turned away or ignored by the disciples of Jesus. See, Gentiles and Jews are not exactly like each other. It may seem sort of random to us why John would include this short excerpt in his gospel account. I mean, it's historically accurate. That doesn't surprise us. But he also left out other things that have happened that are historically accurate. So why did he include this into his account? John is probably written somewhere about 90 A.D. Some, some scholars even put it about 100 A.D. Uh, Christianity by then had reached deep into Gentile territory, such as Rome, Syria, uh, Egypt, Egypt, And the whole purpose of John writing this gospel is actually noted in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, or he wrote, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I think what John is communicating to his readers is that even the Gentiles, even those born outside of Jerusalem, even those who were born outside of Judaism, may seek Jesus. And that Jesus has the same answer for the Greeks that he does for the Jews, which brings us to our fourth stop in our journey this morning, the answer. John chapter 12, 23 through 26. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This last and final point where we will end our journey this morning is the answer. So let's walk through Jesus' answer to the Gentiles, uh, verse by verse, sentence by sentence. Of course, Jesus is going to use this opportunity, these Greeks seeking after him, to reveal spiritual truth to his listeners. Here's what he says. Jesus points these, well, here's what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus points these seekers of Him automatically to the cross. His glorification, His lifting up is coming truly. It is right around the corner from this moment in the text. It's only a few pages over if you want to flip ahead and look. And it really is the foundation for how anybody can see Jesus in the right and truest way. You see, many see Jesus as a a fine person, right? Many see Him as a good teacher, Many see Him as a great leader. Many see Him as even a prophet. Many see Him as this great example to follow after, to model. But in order to see Jesus rightly, as Lord, as Savior, as Son of God, Son of Man, in the way that He desires you to see Him, you must see Him through the lens of His crucifixion. In order for Him to be Savior, He must save you, and the way in which he saves you is again by the blood upon the cross. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus continues to speak, and he makes a point using a way of life that his listeners would have been familiar with, farming. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know a whole lot about farming, I think my wife has aspirations for us to get some blueberry bushes one day and plant them in our backyard. I'm not sure my HOA is going to be cool with that or not, but we might just do it anyway and see what happens, you know, and steal my blueberries. I don't know. We'll see. But I do know this. I I know the gist of it, right? You plant the seed in the ground with the right elements, okay, and in turn, it produces a crop. It produces a fruit. In the process of that seed producing a crop, it dies. You can no longer pull that seed out of the ground once the crop is produced, once the fruit is is made. It's gone. It's used up. Much in the same way, we see two things here. Jesus is going to lay down his life in order to produce an imperishable fruit of eternal life for sinners. And then call anybody who would follow him to lay down their life To do so, he says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's an unusual paradox to our minds, perhaps. Those who love their lives in this life will fail to have life in the next. Those who hate or or detest their lives in this life will have life in the next. Now, what, what Jesus is not saying here is that you cannot enjoy your life or else you're not going to get to heaven. He isn't saying that you have to hate every aspect of your life in order to get to heaven. The sentence doesn't change the salvation formula. You are still saved by grace, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ. But here is something to chew on for you, like a cheap piece of steak. Y'all ever have one of those? If you haven't, let me give you the, the TLDR, right? You put a cheap piece of steak in your mouth, and an hour later, you're still going to be chewing it. And your jaw is going to be hurting, and it's going to be an awful experience for you. So let me, let me give you something to chew on, like a cheap piece of steak. If he saves you, if he saves you, then I believe that he will call you to serve him. And if you are called to serve him, then you will live your life in such a way that communicates to the world around you that you hate your life in comparison to the way in which you live for Christ. In other words, when you serve him, he takes priority above all else. There's no other thing that's on the throne when you serve Jesus, it's only him. He above all else. And He desires us to live in such a way that when somebody looks at our life, they actually begin to think, man, He he loves Jesus so much that He doesn't even care about His own life. I I love the way that John Piper put this when commenting on this verse. He said, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What, What does that mean, John Piper says? He says, it means at least that you don't take much thought For your life in this world. In other words, it just doesn't matter much what happens to your life in this world. If men speak well of you, it doesn't matter much. If they hate you, it doesn't matter much. If you have a lot of things, it doesn't matter much. If you have little, it doesn't matter much. If you are persecuted or lied about, it doesn't matter much. Much. If you are famous or unheard of, it doesn't matter much. If you have died with Christ, if you follow Him, if you serve Him, if you are called to these things, then guess what? All these other things just don't matter much. Jesus offers a radical calling to His listeners You wish to see me? Then die to yourself as a grain of wheat dies. Follow me and find eternal life. Where my servant is, the one who has died to self and lives for me, there, he says, I will be present. Present in their lives. Glorified by their service. And he says, my Father will honor them. Can you think of a greater blessing, a greater honor it is, than to be honored by God the Father? Folks, let me, as we begin to land this plane, if you are a believer in Christ to this day, then you have a calling on your life to serve Him. And so let me just exhort you then to serve Him. Serve Him in your family, at your work, in your schools, in the public square, in the online space. Serve Him as you live and breathe Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Die to yourself daily. Follow Christ with everything you've got and give your life to His service and His kingdom. What greater calling is there than to give your life for something which is eternal, which is imperishable, which will never be shaken down by an earthly throne or an earthly ruler? What? better calling is there than to follow Christ with everything that you are. I want to to invite you to consider the scope of your life over these next few moments. What areas do you need to perhaps let go of in order to follow Christ? And what areas of your life is it time for you to step up and start being the follower that Jesus has called you to be? Remember where where he is going from John chapter 12, okay? He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then from there, it's the cross. And yet the calling is there to follow him, to serve him, and to consider your life to be nothing as you do. We're going to have a time of response this morning. I want to pray for us. The band will come forward. They'll lead us in one song. In these next few moments that we have together, would you please consider these things that I've said and start to think, start to pray, start to ponder, start to, to, to work your way towards what it looks like in your life for you to follow Christ more fully. Maybe for you, it's that first time repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. And maybe for you, you've done that. It's been, a, it's been a few years since you've done that, but you've kind of strayed off the beaten path, so to speak. Maybe it's time for you to repent of some of the sin that you're harboring in your heart and begin to follow Christ again. We, uh, we had an interesting conversation. We, we have a young adult Bible study that meets on Thursday nights for those of you who'd be interested in joining us. We had an interesting conversation. We uh, had talked about every time we have felt distant from the Lord, we would come to realize that He Himself has not moved. It's us who move away from Him. Maybe this morning for you, it is time to move back to the Lord in repentance and in prayer. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we do again come before You to say thank You. Thank You for the grace that You so lavishly put upon us a grace and a favor that we could have never have earned of ourselves, but one that you just give us so freely in Christ. Thank you. Lord, as we have this time of response, I pray that our our heart's prayer collectively would be of a people who wish to see you above all else, a people who wish to serve you and follow You and live for You with utter abandonment for everything else. Lord, may when the lost world looks at us, may they see a love for You that is so great that they begin to think that we even hate our lives in comparison. Please, Lord, do a work in this place today that only You can accomplish, that only You can do. Draw sinners to salvation, bring saints to repentance, whatever the work that is needed in each heart in this place this morning, Lord, we ask that you would have your way. We thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, what he's done for us, dying on our behalf so that by him we can become, as you have called us, the righteousness of God. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.